Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. squad and welcome to ranks fc it's your favorite football podcast back for another week and back to talk about all things world cup my name is jack collins and i'll be your host today and joining me is the rank god mr sam Tai. how you doing mate i'm newly relaxed jack collins newly relaxed i've massively enjoyed the onslaught of four games a day but from here on i'll be watching two and you know what i feel pretty good about that yeah, I mean, you're not a dual screen man. I am. So I'm going to continue watching four until the end of the week. But, but alas, here we are. Uh, and join us, of course, our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. How are you feeling, mate? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Um, I guess by the time this goes out, we know uh, if England made it through or not, or whether they were beaten four or five nil by Wales. So um, if that is the case, then please nobody DM me. Nobody talk to me. <laughs> nobody pay any attention to me for the foreseeable future. Um Hoping that didn't happen and I'm totally fine. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's a reasonable <laughs> assumption to make that it probably won't go down that way. But we'll see. I don't know. Uh, stranger, things know. Have, stranger things have happened during this World Cup. Um, and talking of this World Cup, we've been recording every single day on our Patreon, doing a World Cup daily show. That's going to yeah. continue for the foreseeable future. We look back at all the day's games uh, and give you that kind of quick rundown of anything you might have missed, a quick analysis of what's going on. We've kind of rotated the strike between the three of us uh, across the course of the shows, but we're enjoying them. And if you fancy more World Cup content and, and just keeping yourself updated with exactly what's going on across every day of this World Cup, uh, the link to join our Patreon is in the description. Yeah, do you know what's really, really good? The Dean and what? Sam show. The oh, the Sam Dean and Sam show. It's getting rave reviews, oh, mate. Rave reviews. It's um, so popular. There's no intro music because we don't know how to do it. Um, it's very <laughs> abrupt. It's, it's very um, honest. It's, There's no edits because you don't have no to do edits, them either. So, so it's it, raw, is, it is raw. It's proper raw podcasting at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> Get involved, people. Go, yeah. Come and have a listen. We do uh, 25 minutes Jack... of analysis. And then we yeah. do five minutes of looking back at Jack's predictions. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. I don't think um, you're giving him enough time, to be honest, um, <laughs> considering the shambles that my predictions have been. But uh, alas, uh, Morocco <laughs> Morocco are basically the only side holding up their end of the bargain. So shout out to them. Um, yeah. Right, let's start off with a couple of things we love from this World Cup before we get into the main topic of this podcast, where we're going to be looking at some interesting trends that have taken place across this World Cup. Um, before that though Sam do you want to kick us off yeah I wanted to talk about a player that I've really loved watching uh, that was my idea for this session let's all pick a player that we've loved watching and then I had to actually pick one player that I've loved watching and the truth is I've watched I've loved you know 20 30 40 so then narrowing it down to one was tough and I was really <laughs> close to going for Sofian Amrabat of Morocco but I decided to go for Stefan Eustachio of Canada my second team for the World Cup obviously we are recording well, well, they still are. I mean, they still they still exist. Um, we're, we're recording Tuesday morning, so the um, the round three games have not yet kicked off. But that doesn't matter to Canada because they're already out. That's re- that's a real shame, um, especially for Eustachio, who I think has been pretty monstrous 
for his nation in the middle of the park. Two brilliant performances and the latter one sadly cut short by an injury, which was basically caused by the fact that he was going above and beyond for his country when they needed him the most. And again, very attractive quality. But that first game against Belgium, Canada was so good. And, you know, the source of their power there is Eustachio just dominating in midfield. He's tenacious, he's physical, he's sharp, he's reading Belgium's movements and he's breaking them up and Canada's counter-press is really trapping Belgium in and Eustachio is powering that. He's also probably the calmest player in the final third for Canada, although that isn't saying very much, so maybe we don't hold that as a positive. And you get to the second game against Croatia, he's having to be much more defensive. He's playing in a different area of the pitch because Canada are being dominated. So he's in his defensive third. He's picking up positions like between the centre-back and the right-back, making centre-back clearances with his head and with his feet. He's going 1v1 with Modric and he's he's actually doing okay, but it just proves to be a bit too much for him because something clearly pings in his groin or his thigh or whatever it is and he has to come off at half-time. Again, it's the injury caused by the fact that he is working so hard, so hard in the middle of the midfield for his nation. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a hundred and, well, 135 minutes that... I can't help but admire. And I thought Eustachio was really good in, in many facets of the game over a short period of time. Yeah, really enjoyable performances. And, and as you say, it's a real shame that Canada are out because I think they've given a really good account of themselves. Mm. And, you know, over the course of that 135 odd minutes that he played, I thought he was probably Canada's best player or most consistent player. Yes. Um, so I completely agree. I think it's a it's a really nice start. And, and I think that... There's a lot to, to grow with for, for Canada. And look, Stachio's sort of forced his way into the Porto team this season. He was signed last season and, and found it quite hard to break into that midfield. But with Vitinha's departure, shall we say, um, he's, he's found a spot there. And, and I think we're seeing that form recreated on, on the world stage, which is, which is really nice to see, I think. Um, I'm going to take us onwards uh, and I'm going to take us... So Mohamed Kadus of Ghana, who I think has been absolutely sensational for a myriad of reasons. But generally, I think you can start it off by saying only Bruno Fernandes and Kylian Mbappe have contributed more goals in terms of goals and assists than Kadus so far in this tournament. And considering they play for two of the teams who have already qualified for the last 16, that's a pretty impressive going. Obviously, this is recorded, as Sam said, before the third round of group games kicks off. But that's not a bad return for Caduce, considering how he's been playing. And and considering that Ghana didn't win their first game, obviously, they lost that game to Portugal. Ghana have been heaps of fun, I think, and and, and more refined than perhaps that people gave them credit for. They're, they're quite chaotic and, and a little bit all over the place, but there's definitely more in terms of cohesion than maybe people we worried about, considering this is a, a relatively new squad being put together uh, under relatively new management. There was lots of question marks over Ghana, and, and they've been heaps of fun. And now they have this massive game against Uruguay. As if that could have got any bigger, it's now pretty much a straight shootout to see who qualifies for the knockout round. So maybe revenge will come served cold for Ghana. But Caduce has been absolutely sensational. And I think one of the most interesting things about him is that how many different positions he's played in across the course of this tournament so far. We've seen him in centre midfield. We've seen him on the left wing. We've seen him on the right wing. We've seen him dropping in and playing kind of as a second striker at times. And in all of them, He's been remarkable. He's been Ghana's out ball. He's been able to carry the ball between the lines. He's been able to get in behind. He scored a wonderful glancing header in this game against South Korea. 
And it's sort of a question mark of what can this kid not do? Uh, and can you look at his kind of record this season for Ajax and then take that onto the world stage and, and see what he's done with Ghana? It's just been a real delight to see that that breakout for me. And I, I'm really, really excited to see what he does next. Yeah, I think we all really had Cody Hakpo pegged as our clear, obvious breakout star of the World Cup. Um, and so for anybody to be giving him a run for his money there, uh, is really, really impressive, particularly since Hakpo has, has come up with the goods himself, two goals in two games for the Dutch in the first two. So for Kudus to be outshining him um, in a more dysfunctional team, uh, in a team that's much newer and fresher, and I, I don't necessarily mean that in a good way because a lot of these guys have been renationalized or rushed in. Um, so it's a very uh, mixed up team, I would say. Like I, I did not know what to expect from Ghana. But in that kind of situation where there is no stability and there is no formula, sometimes all you need is a man to step up with the goods and Kudus has done exactly that. He's been awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've liked it a lot, what, I, what I've seen. And, and long may it continue as far as I'm concerned. Uh, DJ, let's throw it over to you. What have you got for us? Well, sorry, lads. I'm not going to join in the game of picking um, players I've loved because there's a different agenda I want to drive home here. And it's actually a bit upsetting for me because I've liked this man throughout his career a lot and uh, I can't handle him anymore. Um, anyway, I love that Cristiano Ronaldo has not been awarded that goal on Monday night. Um, it's Is this for your own predictions? <laughs> absolutely. Well, I guess part of that, yeah. Uh, but Ronaldo celebrating as though he had scored against Uruguay. You're right. I did predict that Ronaldo would score zero non-penalty goals at this World Cup. Um, for a second, it looked like he might have. I mean, he didn't touch it. And to act like he did. And then even when people are trying to say, no, there's actual proof that you didn't. He's like, no, I did. No, this isn't okay. <laughs> and like to not see him getting his own way right now, I'm really enjoying. Like I've loved Ronaldo. Even when he came back to Man United, that first game back, I think it was Newcastle. Um, you know, the whole, everything around it. I was well into it. I was like, brilliant. Ronaldo's back in the Premier League. Would love to see this go well, but, you know, everything that's happened, particularly this season, it's totally turned me off this guy. And like, it's just embarrassing. Like he's acting like a literally like a toddler. Like he's, he's going over the top when he's like pretending he's scored a goal. Like he's, he reminds me of Dylan in so many ways because <laughs> like when Dylan scores a goal at little kickers that he'll go mad and running around like this. And then the second later, he gets the tiniest kick and he's on the floor and like, honestly, like rolling around close to tears. Like, mate, you are nearly 40 years old. Come on. I genuinely thought four... you were talking about Dylan. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> there are 400 <laughs> cameras watching you here. And now today, um, Adidas have come out with a statement um, talking about the sensors that are in the ball now and like clarifying and showing evidence that it's a Bruno Fernandes goal. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo did not touch the ball. Um, this was not uh, a hair of God goal. Um, it will not count. Um, <laughs> Ronaldo is not God. having it. <laughs> he did well. He did get that nice new haircut. Um, if he had a bit longer hair, if he hadn't have had his haircut so short, fair enough. He, he might have actually touched it. If this was the old Ronaldo when he had curtains or something, yeah, or he had his quiff, he Great might look. have been able to touch Great it. Look. Right, well, but, look, there are suggestions on Twitter this morning. This is again Tuesday morning that the Portuguese FA are going to prove that this is Ronaldo's goal. 
I don't know how well-founded those suggestions are. I don't know why you would expend the energy in doing this. I think it's a little because bit... Ronaldo's dis- probably making them. It's, but also, it's maybe. like, is it not going to piss Bruno off it's a bit? Like, very... I know he came out and said he thought that Ronaldo had scored, and, and that's fine. They've and, been told you know, to. Been... It's but like it an agenda. They're, they're going to get Ronaldo this goal to match Eusebio's record. It's like it, it's like they're literally going to... All the players, there was an article in The Athletic. Is this how he wants to get... But this is this how he wants to get the record? Like, secondarily... Course, he care how he gets But it. do you actually genuinely believe that? Because I, I don't actually think this. Because I think that Ronaldo will want that record surrounded by the bright lights, surrounded by teammates, you know, on the stage where, where he wants to perform. And I think that there's, there's various elements of this, but there is an element of showmanship and ego to it. And, I, you know, what with a lot of players i really like this so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and pretend that i don't Me but too. i think he will want the record at the time where he gets those moments to go these are this is my lights i don't think he wants the record on a, on a technicality like so to be clear what, what no, record, i think which record is this eusebio has uh, got nine world cup goals and, yeah. and ronaldo would have matched it with that goal okay but, right. but now he's back down to eight yeah. Okay. So, say, so you could just bring him on against Latvia in the Nations League, but you, obviously that doesn't work. No, it no. Was just an another time. Score, another he's... goal in this World Cup to match Eusebio. Um, but he's um, going to have opportunities to do that. So this is what I think. I think he celebrated like that because he thought he might scored. not. Well, yeah, yeah. He, thought, he thought he'd scored the goal, and therefore he thought that was the goal equal record. I wonder if he. I don't think he will have put the pressure on the Portuguese FA because he won't want to see it given like this. He'll want that moment where he is up in lights and the crowd are with him because. That's what you would want. I, I think that's fair. That, this athletic article that I read today, there, there was a journalist who, I mean, I, I don't envy the job that he had last last night of of trying to to find oh, out. It's it was Felipe like invest, Cardenas investigating the goal, but he's talking about like all the players he asked, and like every time the question was asked to a player, like was it who scored the goal? Um, the the FA would intervene, stop questioning, wouldn't let them answer. Yeah. A couple of players like shook their head and like waved their arms, like I don't know. Uh, I think Bernardo Silva said winked at him or something. Um, not sure. Like it actually does feel like there is an agenda here, and it's nonsense because it took one replay to show you didn't touch the ball. I mean, it's on all, like you know, it's uh, to, to steal a phrase from American sports: a bull don't lie. The ball don't lie. And the ball has a sensor in it that knows when it's been touched because of the semi-automated offside technology. We know factually. So the whole, the fact that we're even sat here talking about this, the fact that multiple people dedicated a portion of their lives on Monday night to this, <laughs> the fact that there's um, Adidas having to r- provide a statement. It is well, take it, taking it, a goal away from a Nike-sponsored athlete as well. <laughs> Man, they love that. It's mad. I did just it, look it up to find out if Bruno Fernandes was an, an Adidas-sponsored athlete. It turns out he's Nike as well. Because that would have really been the cat amongst the pigeons, wouldn't it, if they'd taken it off a Nike athlete to give it to an Adidas. That would be double disrespect. I would have liked it. I would have enjoyed it. Um, Anyway, let's leave that discussion there. Um, Well, there's no need to do Melon of the Week, Dean. That one's... No, uh, that is Melon of the Week, by the way, taken care of. It is Ronaldo. Silly, silly boy. Silly boy. Okay, right. After the break, we're getting into the main topic of this podcast. Don't go anywhere. 
Are you missing out on games you'd want to watch because they're not broadcast in your region? Well, let me introduce NordVPN. If you're in the UK, but you'd rather listen to commentary from our old pal Derek Ray, why not give something new a go? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. And the same goes for our US listeners who are desperate for those dulcet tones of Peter Drury or Martin Tyler. There's no need to travel to Japan if you want to watch the J-League or Austria to keep an eye on the latest youngsters flying off the RB Salzburg pipeline when Nord NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no game is out of your reach. Using our link nordvpn.com forward slash ranks FC, you can try it for a free month. And also there's a huge discount on their two-year plan. Welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for the main segment of our podcast. And Sam, we're going to be talking about some interesting trends we've seen so far at this World Cup. Yeah, trying to find a way to justify the last eight days watching wall-to-wall football, um, trying to find a way to wrap in what we've seen so far and talk about it in a more general sense without kind of trying to, well, without, without ensuring that everything we say is outdated by the time this comes out because the football was moving so, so quickly. So yeah. I've uh, identified five trends that I think can stand the test of time for the most part. Uh, it's roughly based off what we've seen and it can apply moving forward as well. Very good. Very good. Let's get into it. All right. So we'll start with underdog aggression. Now, this has been fascinating and it's it's absolutely shaped the group stage um, to, a, to a massive degree. We're talking about the teams that you would not consider to be the favorites, teams that you may expect to rock up to the World Cup, to the big stage and play against the best players in the world in a certain way. And that certain way would be, let's sit in and defend for our lives. And that just really has not been the case. It just hasn't. And we've got a a handful of teams here who really epitomise this. Tunisia, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Japan to an extent, and Canada. And it's been a massive feature of these teams' games that they have not sat in and defended the box for their lives. They have tried to push forward. They have tried to be aggressive. They've tried to leave that deep block and to varying degrees have been somewhat successful. Like Tunisia managed to hold off Denmark. Morocco are in with a shot of qualifying. Saudi Arabia caused one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history in beating Leo Messi's Argentina. Japan came back in that second half against Germany. And Canada, you know, if you look at the XG against Belgium rather than the goals, the real goals, I mean, that approach nine times out of 10 would have been justified and would have led them to three points. This is a genuine breath of fresh air. It's been fantastic to watch these teams really step out, be bold, be brave, be aggressive and try to put better players under pressure, give them no time and give them something to think about, really destabilize them. I think probably the interesting debate off the back of it Jack is why has this happened? Yeah, I've been I've been racking my brains over it and I, I think I've come to some sort of conclusion in that we didn't see it in the Qatar Ecuador game. Um now Qatar are not that aggressive aside full stop, but we didn't see them truly go at them. Uh, we didn't see it really in the England Iran game to you know, and then there were various caveats as to why that didn't happen, but we didn't really see it. We didn't see it hugely from Senegal against the Netherlands, I didn't think. Um so then you get to game five, where at halftime, we hadn't seen anything of this sort between Argentina and Saudi Arabia. In fact, Argentina could and probably should have been further ahead. 
And then Herve Renard gives this team talk, right? That's now gone viral, where he's running around the dressing room, shouting at his players, asking them if they want to ask Leo Messi to sign an autograph for them during the game, and basically just been like, get into them. Um, in, in, in a, you know, in, in so many words. Suddenly, Saudi Arabia come out in the second half, and they do exactly what their coaches said. They get stuck into Argentina, and they win 2-1. Now, whether you think that's the right result in terms of how the game played out or not, They've gone and they've won against Argentina in one of the great World Cup shocks. Tunisia follow that. They go at Denmark, as you say. We see a couple of games in the following, you know, Australia come out and they have a go at France. Straight off the back. (laughs) They take the lead. We we see these things happen. I thought Morocco did it a bit against Croatia. We obviously saw it in the second half between Germany and Japan. You sort of go through and you're like, okay, these are happening. Canada against Belgium. And suddenly you're like, right, okay, teams are coming out and, and really having a go. And I wonder if it's as simple as saying, They've seen it work mm. and they've gone, right, well, we've seen teams try and sit in. We've seen Iran try and sit in against England and, and get pummeled. We've seen Costa Rica try and sit in against Spain and, and try and get and get pummeled. And we've seen the teams that have come out and genuinely had a go do better in these regards. And I wonder if it's just one of those kind of things that has spread through as a mentality among these underdog teams and gone, you know what? There's no point playing with the handbrake on here because there are teams that can be got at. Now, maybe you exclude the likes of... Brazil from this. Maybe you exclude the likes of Spain from this. But generally, I think you can kind of have a go at anyone. And and I think the US saw that attitude against England the other week. You know, they came out as the underdogs in that game and generally took the game to England and and probably should have won it in Mm. in, in genuine, if we're looking at it genuinely. And I think that all of these things, the more and more it's gone on and the more teams have gone, you know what, we can get a result here. The, the, the more that that's going to infuse into underdog mentality. And I think that's what we're seeing. We talk about a snowball effect, really, aren't we there? Um, mm. my, my, my suggestions for this would be that um, there's been a trickle down of off the ball knowledge and like defensive organization at the so-called smaller teams. And that is based on the fact that a lot of these teams happen to have one or two very good players um, players that have played and now experienced top-level European football and have been able to kind of encourage and instruct their team to get better, you know, lift lift the average level. So let's take Canada, for example. If you've got like, okay, so about half the Canada team, a lot of people wouldn't recognise, but they do recognise Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies and Stefan Eustachio, who play for Lille, Porto and Bayern. Three top teams. Three top teams that experience top coaches, play with top players. If you're Davies and you step into that Canada setup, are you not imparting some of your counter-pressing, pressing, defensive orientation knowledge that you've earned, that you've learned from Bayern on your teammates? Is is he is he is he lifting the mean level of their defensive aptitude and their game planning? Is the same happening when Mehdi Taremi is leading the line for Iran? I wonder if this is a factor. And I also wonder if having a World Cup in the middle of the season means that they're not all so exhausted by the end of it that they can actually step forward and be aggressive. Mm, maybe. I also think, honestly, I think this is a trend that is continuing from club football too. I, th- I think that there is just a general mindset right now where where smaller clubs aren't as scared of, of bigger teams as, as they perhaps once were. And maybe it's a case that fatigue, mental fatigue and physical fatigue set in for a lot of the big players over the past couple of years like whenever I speak to um, agents of, of players like quite often it crops up if their player is out of form or something they 
it comes back to lockdown and they talk about how difficult so many players found that period. Like it was relentless for them. Everyone else was sat at home. Those players were playing in unforeseen circumstances. They were not seeing their families when everyone else was stuck at home with their families. They were playing in weird situations. And ever since then, there's been a pretty much relentless schedule. Yeah. And you look at just around Europe this season. I mean, Liverpool have lost five and drawn five games this season. You look at the last game before we came into the World Cup and Man City were beaten at home by Brentford, something none of us would have expected to see. Bayern Munich have failed to win five times this season. Inter Milan have lost seven games so far this season. I just think like maybe it's it's this mentality that has creeped into the World Cup too. As you say, it probably helped because it's in the middle of the season. There's a there's just a lack of fear, I think, generally in football right now. Mm. Yeah, I think mm. I think it's a really interesting topic, and, and I think it's 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 making for better games. So I'm I'm not going to complain about no. it anytime soon. D- um, Dean, what, inter- what you're saying there about uh, the the mental fatigue and physical fatigue of the lockdown, are we basically experiencing our own version of those three summers in a row when there was a Copper America every time, and then off the back of it, yeah. Alexis Sanchez sort of died. You know, it, yeah. it, and, and all those South American players were just rung like rung through like Luis Suarez, like Alexis, like. Like, like all of them, really. Um, and yeah. um, Gonzalo Higuain never recovered from this. You forget that they're people sometimes. Like, we do forget that they're people. And, like, well, it's all very well us being sat at home watching all of these matches. And, you know, we're saying, God, it's exhausting, isn't it? We're watching four games a day <laughs> from our sofa. I can't wait till this ends. And these players have just played however many games already this season. And they've flown out to Doha they're playing in 30 degree heat. They're, they're not seeing their families. They're, they're not having any of the normal life that the rest of us have. And I know that that's part and parcel of the job, but it doesn't mean it's easy. And I, I, I just do sometimes think we dehumanize them and we forget, you know, people, when we criticize like on the back of performances, like say, I don't know, England not beating USA and there's this big like inquest into it and like Phil Foden should have played and this and that. And you're like, Okay, or they're just human and they didn't win the game. <laughs> like it can be as simple, simple as that sometimes. Can be. Yeah. Well, the US were just really good. Um, but uh, alas, here we are. Right, Sam. I think it's probably time to move on to number two. Yeah. So we're linked. We're linking the first two here because we're going to talk about tactical flexibility next. Um, I've looked through. I mean, I've watched every single game in the first two rounds. I've documented it all in my notepad. I've ch- I've clocked all the formations, and I can tell you that an absolute ton of teams have used two discernibly different formations either from one game to the next or flicking mid-game from one to the other and a list of not all of them but definitely ones that i i clocked were ecuador iran argentina mexico poland denmark tunisia japan costa rica canada ghana cameroon and uruguay have all switched formations either one game to the next wales have two or mid wales too yeah Wales have two. And Wales, yeah, Wales have two, yep. for sure. Um, so, look, I'm not saying that changing formation is rare. Obviously, that happens. The degree to with which this is happening has sort of surprised me. And that mm. is a list that I've just read out with all manner of different um, teams. You know, we go from Argentina down to Canada. That's a World Cup winner versus a team that haven't been to a World Cup for 36 years. It is all manner of conferences and areas of the world from Japan to Costa Rica to Argentina to Poland and there are some teams who have retained the same sheet shape in across both games but have distinctly changed different players roles as well in that same shape so Granit Xhaka for Switzerland was very high up against Cameroon and then played very deep against Brazil 
Bernardo Silva played very deep in the first game and then higher up in the second. Timothy Castagna went from wing back to centre back. Again, the degree to with which this is happening, the flexibility, the willingness to change, it's very impressive to me. And especially when you come to the so-called lesser nations, that they're willing to go and do this. It's another step in that in line with that being them being very bold, very brave, very aggressive. Yeah, I like this. This is a, it's really interesting. And, and I think you're right. And, and actually, the, the bit of this that intrigues me perhaps the most is the, the switches within game. Japan, perhaps the best example of this twice, mm. right? In that they, they went from one shape to another in that Germany game that really did give them the added bite that they needed to try to shut down that David Raum overload on the, on the left-hand side. They went to a three at the back and from there managed to play far more aggressively down both wings and, and start to push Germany backwards. And, you know, from there, we all know what happened in terms of the result. Then we saw the same thing happen against Costa Rica, um, but in so many ways, I was going to say the phrase there, you can't kid a kidder, right? But you can't you can't counterattack against a team that don't want to come out with the ball, <laughs> um, which kind of left Japan a little bit listless, I think, in, in so many ways. And mm-hmm. what, what we saw in, in that game was Japan tried to go to that shape that had hurt Germany, mm-hmm. and it not really do all that much until Matoma came on, who was basically the only person willing to take the ball and dribble at people. And actually, when, when you look at these kind of shape changes... I think maybe that's the most interesting part in that obviously the manager there has gone, right, this worked against Germany. It might work here. And actually the the difference in the two situations and the two game states was probably worth bearing in mind at that point in that it wasn't, it wasn't the same game to change and therefore maybe a slightly different tweak rather than the one that, that worked last time would have been, would have been a better answer. Yeah, there are there are better examples here of it of it working well. Um, you know, not necessarily just trying the same thing. Oh, that worked last time. Like Denmark moving from three four three to four three three halfway through their first game to get Ericsson on the ball deeper, so that they actually have some ball progression. Argentina finally taking the lead against Mexico and immediately switching into a five three two to try and protect. Like there are examples here of teams who have actually adjusted really, really well and not necessarily just go, oh, that worked the first time, let's give that a go. There's some smart management going on. There's some really yeah, smart yeah, management. Yeah, I agree. Um I agree. and it, and it's it's good. I mean, look, there's been some dumb management going on as well, like Costa Rica setting up in a four four two against Spain, going three goals down <laughs> and then just ex- being exhausted. That's dumb. Really, really dumb. Most of what Pretty much anything Wales have done. A lot. Yeah. Uh, Wales opting for Dan James in the first game over Kiefer Moore. That's dumb. Argentina crowding the middle so Messi has no space to play. That's dumb. Look, some of it's bad. <laughs> some of it is really bad, but actually quite a lot of it has been very reactive, very good, very refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. That's a lot of teams you listed, by the way. That, yeah. that really is a lot of teams. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people doing it. Lots of people doing it. Let's move into number three, shall we, Sam? Okay, so I think I feel like this links in again because we're going to talk about substitute impacts next. Um, and I'm not going to claim the credit for it. It was uh, the athletic tactics writer, Liam Tharm, who basically pointed this out for the um initially and i'm just going to not rip off his tweet because i've given him the credit but i'm going to i'm going (laughs) to read out the examples that he gave of attacking substitutes not only changing games but but kind of winning them in certain points as well you look at that spain germany game bringing on alvaro morata and nicholas fulcrook clearly had a massive difference for both sides Kiefer moore stepping onto the pitch against the usa instead of dan james completely turned that game on its head vanson abubakar against serbia is its own wonderful story that goes down in the history of the world cup all of japan's subs in the second half against germany 
Julian Alvarez's stretching runs against Mexico for Argentina, creating space for Messi to actually get that shot away and score. And even something like Monday night, where Rodrigo steps off the bench for Brazil in the second half, brings brings the attack to life and technically picks up that assist for Casemiro's lovely goal as well. Again, I think it's a discussion point. Yeah, Rafael Leal against, uh, for Portugal against Ghana. Suddenly yeah. the game was stretched and they scored two. I don't think it's any surprise that they scored two goals after he came on to, yeah. uh, to kind of stretch that defence. Yeah, absolutely. There's, mm. there's, there's, there's lots of them. Um, really important things. Um, I'm starting to, I, again, I don't think I've seen this many um, attacking subs come off um, in a World Cup context. And, I, and I'm wondering why, what's the difference? Again, it's a discussion point. I wonder if it's, the, if it's the benefit of five subs. Obviously, if you have more subs to use, you have more chances that one of them will make an impact. But not just about the quantity. Does it make managers more willing to change, more willing to give it a go? They get three opportunities to change the shape of the game plus half time. That's four chances to change how this game is going, which you didn't necessarily get beforehand because you probably wouldn't make three separate subs and you wouldn't mm. get that free break. So I wonder if just having more at their disposal makes them bolder i wonder yeah. if having more chances to change the game means that actually they're not so cautious with their substitutes in case there's an injury because it used to be if you have three well you wouldn't want to make three subs early to change the fabric of a game in case you get an injury in the 80th minute you go down to 10 well, it's different you have to get 100 minutes now instead of 90 so that's handy. <laughs> <laughs> i also think i also think there's an element of that that's tactical right because you know if you make two subs on of three and you change your team into an attacking force and you take the lead, you're going to use the, the, the third sub or the third and final sub to make a defensive change in order to protect it, right? Mm. So actually what they're able to do is make three or four subs to try and change the game in their favor, knowing that if that works out, you can still make that fifth sub to kind of slow the game down and bring on another defender, et cetera, et cetera, in order to try to shore up a result that you might, you know, been chasing in the first place. So I think there's a tactical element to those subs as well. Yeah, I mean, we go back to this Argentina-Mexico game here where they start to make changes based on the fact that they're not getting enough out of their attacking players. And like Enzo Fernandez steps onto the pitch, Nahuel Molina steps onto the pitch, Julian Alvarez steps onto the pitch and they get their goal. That's three subs already done. That's that, that's mm. it. That, that used to be it. They get the goal and they bring on Palacios of, of Bayer Leverkusen, who's a very good stabilising midfielder, and Christian Romero, who's a centre-back. And they slot him into the back three. They go 5-3-2 and they shot off the game. So three subs on, score two goals, two more subs on, see the game out. This was not possible yeah. before. I mean, that should really point to the fact that the smaller nations have less chance of of a giant killing. But the first point you made was that like all of the underdogs are being more aggressive and taking the game to the opponents. And maybe it is because they know that the first half is their best chance to actually make an impact because once those changes start to be made, it's going to become more difficult for them to have the same, they won't have the same depth. Like you look at the the six favorites for the tournament and you know, however well they perform like that's, that's what it will be. But the the choices and the options off of the bench for these teams is sometimes absolutely ludicrous. And if you are, I don't know, Qatar, if you are Wales, if you're Mexico, if you're Tunisia, you, you haven't got anything close to that. You're relying on like a, a 13, 14 core and then mm. like maybe the other couple later on. Yeah, I think I think this is where the, um, the approach that these um, lesser nations in quotes are taking really comes into play because... 
if you're super aggressive and you prioritize work rate and energy as, as like a as like a natural stabilizer in games so like we'll, we'll overcome your quality with sheer hard work having mm. five subs means you can put five sets of fresh legs onto the pitch so if you are playing pressing games or aggressive like aggressive games in the middle of the park where you're trying to shut off every angle like morocco do you can have five fresh players step onto the pitch. So replace your front five and keep up the pressure. And that can yeah. actually level the playing field a little bit when you are against superior quality. So again, it points to you should play with energy. You should play with that dedication and aggression because you get to change five of them and keep that up. Whereas before you would never have done that because you would have to ask seven players to play at that intensity for 90 minutes or 100 in this case. Yeah. I've been I've noticed this as a thing though teams changing the entire front five yeah as opposed yeah, to as yeah. opposed to yeah we've seen this a lot I mean look you go to this Croatia Canada game right the five changes the Canada make they take Carl Aaron off bring Osorio on they bring Adekugbe on for Hutchinson they bring Estacchio off for Kone they bring Hoyler on for Richie Larea um, and they bring Cavallini on for Jonathan David and then you go to Croatia who bring Pekovic on for Levaya, they bring Orsic on for Perisic, they bring Vlasic on for Kramaric, Meyer on for Modric, and Pasalic on for Kovacic. These are both the front fives, right? Mm, that, yeah. That's the changes that have been made. And that's not the only game where that's happened. And, you know, I've been doing the same as you, Sam, noting it all down in the notebook. And the amount of times I've gone, oh, they've taken off the entire forward line and the, and the two high-pressing midfielders here is, is very, very notable. And you I, like I think it? Do you think this is better for the game? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I think we we can see. What do we see? Something like sixteen of the thirty-two games we've seen so far have been nil-nil at half time, which mm. maybe puts a little bit paid to that argument that you were you were saying, Dean, about the fact that teams are going to start hard. I think teams are quite happy to get to the second half, knowing that they can make their own changes and knowing they can come out of half time going, you know, we'll come out guns blazing second half and see if we can get the lead because if we can pick up the lead in the fifty-fifth, sixtieth yeah. minute. There's far less time to defend than if we pick up the lead in the, in the third, fourth minute. And I think Canada found that out to their detriment, right? right they were, yeah. they were actually looking at it and going, oh, actually, we've got 85 minutes to defend. Whereas if you take the lead, as, as other teams have done later on in the game, there's a little bit more of a kind of achievable goal in getting to the, getting to the end. And I think with those substitutions, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. No, that's a fair point. Mm. Right, that's three of our five done. But I think it's probably time to take a break there. So we'll be back. After the break. Right, welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for our third and final segment where we're going to be talking the last two parts, Sam, of your five interesting trends we've seen. That was that was very football-y. Um, it's probably <laughs> the best football discussion we've had in a long time, actually, in terms of actually discussing the game itself. So I assume this is going to take a slight turn for, for the more bizarre. It will eventually. <laughs> it will eventually. But we'll stay on topic for now. By the way, it's only right that we have a proper football discussion after watching all that football. We've got to put yeah. it to good use, lads. We really do. Yeah. Um, There's been a lot of minutes consumed. Let's yeah, put it that way. Absolutely. But uh, we'll move on a second. One thing that has struck me, uh, thanks to the assistance of, of Jack Collins' observational skills, is that for quite a lot of the teams in this tournament, it, the World Cup has kind of proven to be one competition too far for some key players. And that's that's really weighed them down. And I think it's a really sad thing, particularly for those that are playing their first World Cup. And it's just come a little too late in their cycle. And there's, there's a couple of teams here in particular that this applies to. And I'm running a serious risk here because, again, Tuesday morning, tonight, England play Wales. What the hell could happen? But this really does apply to Bale and Ramsey, who are playing their first ever World Cup. 
They've had some wonderful times with Wales, obviously Euro 2016 being the absolute key. But these two haven't really been able to affect games in the way they would have wanted to in this tournament. It's been tough for them. And it's because they're past their best. There's there's no other way around it. They just are. And so Wales are really searching for a key figure here. They're really searching for a talisman and Bell steps up and takes the penalty. But their open play impact has been really, really, really limited. And this also kind of applies to Atiba Hutchinson, who's 39 years of age. He's playing Canada's first World Cup since 1986. He's actually been pretty good, but he has at most 60 minutes in his legs and he cannot play a minute more at this level. And in the second game... I thought, to be honest, I thought in the first game they started him and being like, this is your moment. You know, this is the first World Cup. You've you've earned the right to lead the boys out first game. I I didn't think they'd start him in the second. I mean, that's not to do with... I think his performance was absolutely fine in the first game, but there was an element I was like, oh... You started him again. I wasn't expecting that. Well, the, the big problem here was that Eustachio went off at halftime injured. So Hutchinson had to play probably more minutes than they really planned. Because without Eustachio and Hutchinson, that midfield looks completely new. So he's actually, actually he's ended up going above and beyond as well. But I think they're aware of his limitations. And, and so is Hutchinson. Um, it's just such a shame that he couldn't have had this moment when he was 35. He, yeah, it's just it's just a bit too far. And then we'll start to look at a few more of the established World Cup nations as well and see that they're also, you know, to various degrees, struggling with this. They're leaning on some guys whose prime is clearly past. And Mexico, I think, are looking at Hector Herrera and ultimately they're realising that he's no longer the the box-to-box dynamo that he once was. He has, he has run his yards. Gregor Krakowiak is having a terrible time in, in Poland's midfield, but they just say. don't seem to have anybody else to look to. The entirety of Costa Rica's team is um, not past it, but struggling. Um, Aldevir Oldervertongen and Witzel for Belgium, I think, fall into this category too. Very slow, very tired, really struggling. Diego Godin is still playing for Uruguay. <laughs> and Luis Suarez is limping around up front. I was say, he's not playing. He's just there. He's there. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps you could argue that Daley Blind for the Dutch is here as well. Although he's playing left wing back and that obviously doesn't suit him. So I do think that there's part of part of the reason for this is the system to blame. But yeah. in, in 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 those those teams I've just mentioned, we're talking about Belgium, Uruguay, and the Netherlands. Ask ten people before the World Cup who their top ten nations were, and at least nine or eight of them would have had these three teams in their top ten as like on paper quality. All three of these teams are still hanging on to players somewhere between thirty five <laughs> and thirty nine <laughs> or whatever it is that aren't just uh, they're just not quite there and you get the feeling that for a lot of these guys it's just one world cup too far it's disappointing for me because it means i could technically still be playing at a world cup <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> this was my last chance you had 60 this minutes my last midfield in you, mate. <laughs> i could have got 60 minutes at it, out in doha uh, what a shame yeah. huh what a shame oh, yeah. a real it's gone shame. Now. Um, my 40s by the next one <laughs> <laughs> yeah one one too far i mean look a lot of people a lot of people are saying that this you know belgium have have squandered a golden generation over three attempts to win a world cup here i feel like there's a bit more nuance to it than that 2014 i think was too early for the team 2018 was the time and, and they got edged by the eventual winners france in a in a 1-0 game um, in a semi, right? Like, in, in a semi by a set, by a set piece, a header from yeah. a corner. That was it. That was the difference between them going to a final or not. 
And in 2022, very obviously, it's too late for a lot of this team. It doesn't help that Lukaku's mm. injured, but this defence is creaking. And so Belgium, it's very sad for them that they only really had one shot at this with this crop, despite it spanning technically 12 years. They should have won. They should have won Euro 2016. That was the yes. the year where I feel like this was its prime form of, of where they were, yeah. and, and obviously they didn't win that tournament. And I think there's been an interesting well, that was case. Prime that's said, the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the, that Belgium side should not have lost at that point in that tournament, but but Wales did them, and, and fair play to Wales because that is one of the great results in Welsh yep. football history, maybe the great result um, in Welsh football history. But you, you look at that and you think that was a team that set up to win the tournament, and somehow they managed. To to absolutely collapse against Wales. And, and and these things happen sometimes in tournament football. And, and that's kind of the joy and beauty of it in so many ways. But equally, it does it does mean that it's quite hard sometimes to look at it and go, right, you know, mm. how how did they squander this? Is that how it happened? Um, but I think this is it, right? I think there's a lot of these players you just feel, Aaron Ramsey's the one for me. Like Gareth Bale, I still think has a presence around him that offers something to this Welsh side. And and you're looking at him going, okay, there are still he's still drawing defenders into himself. There mm. are still moments here where you're looking at how he's playing and thinking, okay, if if Wales get a free kick or a penalty, I'm pretty confident yeah. that Gareth Bale is going to step up and step up for his nation as he has done for some time. But Aaron Ramsey was anonymous in both games and played the best part of 90 minutes in both. And and I think that there's an element here, and, and I saw this on, on Twitter. I think it was Steve Tudor who said, if you're not Welsh, you won't understand because the reason he's playing is because there's no one to step into his breach. You know, there is not this world-class pipeline of talent in the way that other nations have been able to. But I, I don't necessarily think it's that for me. It's the fact that he can't move and he's been so bypassed in these two games that I'd rather have Joe Morell in there. And Joe Morell is not a player that you're going to look at and go, he's going to set the world on fire, but I know he'll give me legs. I know he'll be able to, to move around the pitch. And I know that he, he's going to offer something going both ways, where I think Aaron Ramsey is offering almost nothing. There is this kind of ghost of a spectre of magic that once he could have offered and that maybe if the ball falls to him in the right position, he could score. And he has done that occasionally for Nice this season, ghosted into the right position. And But generally, I think his performances have been poor. And over the course of this World Cup, I don't think he's offering enough. I think you can carry one of these players, basically. I don't think you can carry two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, you have, they have been carrying both, you're right. I Absolutely. mean, look, that's just, just to be clear and just to be official to the football gods, that does not count as a football jinx ahead of tonight because Jack is Irish. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Not a jinx. So if you're listening to this and Bale and Ramsey have scored two each, yeah. <laughs> it was not God. because of us. It's not because of us. It's that it was is hopefully because a freak of, of nature. <laughs> it was hopefully because of me. And I am speaking from beyond the grave. Right <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Four nil. Four nil. Two for Bale. Two for Ramsey. Um, I mean, stranger things have happened. Have uh, right, no, Sam, they haven't. I, I don't think they, <laughs> they have. Actually, have. that's a lie. That's a lie. Stranger things haven't happened. Um, right. So that takes us on to. Number five, and our final one, Sam. Yeah, it's a bit of a lighthearted one. It's just something that only a saddo like me would notice as he writes down all his silly little football formations in his silly little notebook with his silly little multicoloured clicker pen. It's that goalkeeper shirt numbers are out of control. Gone, firmly gone are the days where 
the goalkeeper, the first choice goalkeeper, will just wear number one. It just doesn't really happen that much anymore to a stunning degree. And we, Jack and I, I mentioned this to Jack and we sat there on Monday night and we, we clocked it all. Uh, just after the the final game in in the second round, so it's sixty four goalkeeping performances to look at. Of the first round, so thirty two, thirteen of them were not wearing number one. So close mm-hmm. to half not wearing the one shirt. And then in round two, because of three changes, injuries or otherwise, exactly half of the goalkeepers were not wearing. Number one, 16 of the 32 keepers wore a number other than one. That was thanks to Munir replacing Bono after the national anthem. It was thanks to Barsham replacing Al-Shib for Qatar and Hosseini replacing Bayern Van for Iran. Now, look, we're going to see a couple more of those guys step back in for round three, but Danny Ward will have to replace Wayne Hennessy due to suspension. We're going to get one in the column, Jack. It could get to halfway again. Could we get to over half? Who knows? Oh, Who knows? It's, know. it's it's madness. Yeah. But it, it it is a bit ridiculous. I mean, look, we squad numbers are something that some people care about and some people very deeply don't. And I appreciate that this isn't a discussion that everyone's going to enjoy. But that's why I left it to last. <laughs> Spain have gone. Spain have gone berserk for, for to begin with. But I mean, look. Gavi yeah. did drop a number nine esque finish in that first game against Costa Rica. So I did tweet saying maybe he picked the right number after all. But <laughs> it's illegal that Gavi is wearing nine. Um, it's illegal that Pedri is wearing 26. You know, he's probably the best player in this squad. He cannot be wearing the 26 shirt. Mm. It's just not okay whatsoever. There's just lots wrong with it. Like yep. generally across the board, I'm like, what's going on? We haven't seen a single team play a 1 to 11 yet. It's disgraceful. Does that ever anywhere anymore? Uh, uh, Burnley did it once, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think I think at World Cups, right. you genuinely World might Cup, see it. Chance, because, yeah. you know, obviously we've seen the squads increase to 26. That probably hasn't helped proceedings yeah. in, in many ways. There's always someone that just picks a rogue, like, you know, Bellingham picks 22 because mm. of his... You know, because he I likes big four, uh, four and eight and a ten. <laughs> well, yeah. no, all, right. all right, Jude. Well, no, no, yeah. no. Nowadays, it's it's literally the goalkeeper's fault. I think we can blame the goalkeeper. Oh yeah, true. Because yeah, Emmy Martinez is Argentina's number one goalkeeper. Of course, he wears twenty three. Alois is the Saudi Arabia first choice goalkeeper. Obviously, he's wearing twenty one. Darman for Tunisia, mm. sixteen. Edward Mendy, sixteen. Ochoa has always worn thirteen. To be fair, that's fine. We can give him that one. He's allowed that one. Um, Gonda for Japan, twenty-two. Unai Simon, twenty-three. Gonda oh, wears twelve, doesn't he? It's kind of rogue. I think that's maybe one of the most rogue ones. Boyan, eighteen. I think. Onana, yeah, Milinkovic Savic wears twenty-three for yeah. for Serbia. Yeah. Rochette, twenty-three. Yeah. And the one I don't like the most, actually. Because obviously, like it seems like a lot of goalkeepers are going for twenty-three if they're not going for one, which I don't get. But whatever it is, what it is. So explain to me why Diogo Costa feels like he has to have twenty-two. Stop it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe mm. he saw his hero Rui Patricio wearing the eleven shirt at Wolves and thought he'd double it. I'm twice as good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe that. Maybe that's his thinking. Um, that's all I can offer in terms of why he thinks that twenty-two is the number for him. Yeah, don't know. Yeah, if you didn't have a 1 to 11 shirt and you got to pick a squad number, what would you put? 17. Um, well, I'm a 10 and a 7 rolled together. <laughs> <laughs> also, Joaquin wears it, doesn't he? 26, because I'd definitely be the worst player in the squad. 
What would you have to? You can't. You can't do that to yourself. You can't. You can't give it that. Well, yeah. Well, actually, the worst player. I'll have the last shirt, lads. Don't worry about me. Just ignore (laughs) me. Pretend I'm not here. Um, I do like fourteen. I do like fourteen in that context. I'll have twenty-three. Twenty-three. Any particular reason? Is it Beckham at uh, Galaxy? Beckham wore twenty-three, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, I think he was following on from some famous basketball player, but. <laughs> it's not, not really my bag. Not really uh, my bag. <laughs> no, so think, yeah, I'll take the bag. Not really my basket. Either. No, although yeah, I remember uh, the first name I actually got that was like not a normal like one to ten, one to eleven thing was Andy Cole joined Man United, and um, he was number seventeen. He joined from Newcastle. It was Cole seventeen, and it felt really like different. It was like whoa, no, he's a number nine, and uh, or sometimes a ten. I think he was, but. Um, yeah, Cole seventeen was my first venture into that into that realm. I had a Mal Bronk. I had a Mal Bronk fourteen. Oh, Mal Bronk fourteen. Mal Bronk fourteen. That was that was a good shout. I might have I had a Saha twenty at some point. See, I never yeah. noticed any of this until it got completely out of whack when Ronaldinho rocked up in an eighty or whatever it was, and I was like, right, okay, oh, that's yeah. that's clearly you've not really followed the normal pattern there. Something's gone wrong. It yeah. needs to be so different for me to even notice. But nowadays, I've got a Frankie De Jong twenty one. Got Frankie De Jong, twenty-one. But most oh, yeah. of mine are sevens. Yeah, I had a Larson seven. I had a Pembridge seven. No, very few people have a Pembridge seven. Pembridge seven. Yeah, blimey. there you go. Um, I had a Totti ten, Maradona ten. I've got. A, I had an old Netherlands shirt with fourteen on it for Johan Cruyff, um, but it obviously didn't have his name on it. It was just one of the old, like classic, with just the fourteen in white numbers on the oh, back. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah, I'm drawn yeah. to Love fourteen. That oh. Those World Cups must have been so hard to track. Because not you know not only did you not have like any real idea of like anyone who played for the other teams because the game wasn't as global as it is now, but they have their names on the back. Yeah. I was talking about this with, with Tim Spears yesterday on on the Athletic Soccer Show. We were talking about the fact that we uh, South Korea have uh, obviously Cho Gae Sung up front. And he was saying it's really nice to see a player that nobody knows anything about. Mm, yeah. and because, like, obviously you used to have World Cups where you'd be like, oh, I wonder who's playing for Brazil. Like, yeah. th- that's so, so not the case anymore with, with the globalization of the game. <laughs> and even the likes of the, the more obscure players in this Brazil squad, like Pedro from, from Flamengo, you know, we've seen a fair bit of him because of the Copa Libertadores and, and, and those kind of games being YouTube. televised. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, some of us some of us stay up and watch the Copa on, on BBC Red Button, but, you know, whatever yeah. whatever floats your boat. Um, but I think seeing him come through as, you know, South Korea's number nine and being like, whoa, who's, who's this guy? <laughs> he plays with Book Motors. Mm. Like, that, that's a really nice that's element it. of the World Cup. And I was really, really pleased with that. Yeah, I th- yeah. I've had the same with Isa Laiduni, haven't I, from Tunisia, who plays for Ferenc Varos. I've had one person tell me that I should have known who he was because he plays um, in a top European league. So I don't know about that, mate. Um, he, play, he does play <laughs> Europa League football, though. Yes, he does. Apparently, he's put up really good numbers for the last four years and I should have noticed him. Anyway, discovery. Discovery is one of the beautiful parts of football and in particular, the World Cup really harnesses that. Obviously, there are far fewer yeah. secrets nowadays, but there's always someone. There's always someone that will pop on, and uh, you won't know who that is. Yeah. You go, oh, that's quite. That's, that's quite decent. I mean, I'm not yeah, even definitely. that familiar with Tejon Buchanan, even though I've seen him play a few times. But he is, he's been mm. fantastic in this World Cup. Really, really mm. good. I'm still getting to know him. Brilliant. 
Yeah, enjoyable. Very, very yeah. enjoyable. Um, Wait till we have forty-eight teams in the World Cup, then you'll be then you'll be scrambling around again. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. this World Cup has been a great, great advert for. There's only what two or three teams qualified before the last round goes in. Yeah. It's been a really good advert for competitiveness in in a group yes. of four. Yeah. So obviously we're abandoning that. I mean, yeah. look, forty-eight teams does does mean that the chances of Ireland qualifying increase. <laughs> so I'm taking some some solace from that, but uh, but I do agree. And it's going to be very interesting, and obviously. It goes into the knockout rounds faster so it's going to be it's going to be intriguing it's going to be totally different isn't it it'll be a yeah. completely yeah, yeah, different yeah. it's going to be a completely yeah. different experience so enjoy this world cup as the last one of, of the, the last one of this era yeah um so dial in guys if you haven't already i assume if you've listened to 55 minutes of this podcast you're pretty dialed into the world cup as it is yeah. but um but yeah no enjoy it while it lasts yeah. and if you're uh, still listening at this point you should definitely be on patreon with yeah, us because you're gonna absolutely love it mm. it's it's great fun we're having a great time and just as the month turns over is a great time to join as well so yeah. um, well anytime now yeah because like it goes month to month so from the moment actually you start paying your fiver now it actually rolls on for the full month I, i've activated it jack i've activated that there you so, go well done um so you get a full month for a fiver if you don't like it you can go look at uh, that we don't mind but a tactical but, uh, flexibility won't. it's even present tactical on this flexibility. <laughs> Exactly. We have it. We have it. And right we'll on that through the World shelf. Cup and Christmas anyway. Yes, we will. We will. Especially when you get our Christmas specials as well in December. Uh, there is there is lots to be enjoyed. Uh, what's that episode we do? Where, um... Dear Dean. Dear Dean. Dear Dean. Yes. <laughs> One of my favourites. Dean's Agony Art episode coming at you after this World Cup is finished. Um, Right, let's get on with it and let's say goodbye. Thank you so much to everybody for listening as ever. Uh, Thank you very much to our transfer guru, King of the Andals and the first men of 5x5 champion, Mr. Dean Jones. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much to our rank god, third choice Norwegian bass goalkeeper and head of dispatch, Mr. Samsai. Cheers, buddy. I've been Jack Collins, Knave of Hearts. Thank you so much for listening as ever. And we will see you either on Patreon or next week, gang. Take it easy. Take it easy.